to let it lopate at large, I'm let it lopate. Ira Glasser was the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1978 to 2001. And during that time, the organization was a leading force in protecting civil rights and free speech in this country. A new documentary called Mighty Ira examines Mr. Glasser's career, the ways in which the organization changed during his tenure and its lasting influence on our nation's political climate. Film can be seen currently on the Angelica platform, and starting tomorrow, it'll be available on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play. I'm honored to welcome Ira Glasser to our show, along with Nico Perino, the film's co-director and senior producer. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? Thanks, Leonard. Ira, you retired from your position as executive director of the ACLU almost 20 years ago. Considering the current state of free speech and racial justice, do you regret at times that you're no longer at the forefront of the fight? No. Um, uh, the fight goes on uh, no matter when you leave the stage. And um, if I had stayed another five years or another 10 years, um, we would still be pretty much where we are today, uh, and and uh, even if I were there now, um, you know, you'd have to leave sometime, and uh, the, the race goes on, and the baton is picked up by other runners, and the fight never ends. It's not it's not the kind of it's not a baseball game that ends you know after a certain number of innings. It's it's uh, it's the kind of fight that that just goes on and on and on, and while you're on the stage. You run as fast as you can and as hard as you can, and and you always have to depend on other people to continue the race, no matter who you are, no matter what it is. Nico, uh, was the fact that this year is the centennial of the founding of the ACLU a factor in your decision to make this film about Ira now? <laughs> no, it was just a convenient mm -hmm. coincidence and something that we could, of course, tie the promotion of the film to. The inspiration for the film really goes back to January of 2017. Anyone who's made a film knows it takes multiple years to do so. Yeah. But in January 2017, Nat Hentoff, who some of your listeners might be familiar with because he was a longtime columnist for The Village Voice. And used to be on WBAI. Away. He did a jazz show here many, many That's years right. ago. That's right. I did not know that. But he, yeah. he of course, passed away in, in 2017. And I went to his funeral at uh, Riverside Memorial Chapel on the Upper West Side, and I was there with a friend who happened to introduce me to two men who I did not know, um, but they introduced themselves as Ira Glasser and Norman Siegel, and uh, they said, you do what I used to do, or what we used to do, and I said, okay, well, you know, who are you and what did you used to do? And then Ira and Norman introduced themselves, and I was a bit embarrassed that I didn't know who they were. I, I defend free speech on college campuses for the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, but I had always known of their generation as being stalwart defenders of freedom of speech and really created uh, the First Amendment as we know it today through their many decades of battles. And it was from that meeting that I invited Ira on my podcast. He said I might not remember much. And uh, mm -hmm. three hours later, we were still talking and he remembered everything. So that was the inspiration for the documentary. documentary. Now, I'll be addressing, understandably, most of my questions to Ira, but feel free to, to jump in whenever you have something you want to add, okay? Of course. Okay, Ira, the, the film focuses largely on two historic events, although there are many other things in it. Uh, one is when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947, and the other is the ACLU's controversial defense 
of the rights of neo-Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois in 1978. Do you see them as defining moments in your life? Well, certainly the first one. Um, uh, the, the second one, it turned, it turned out to be uh, one of the more significant moments at the ACLU. Um, you know, I was, I was there between the New York affiliate and the national office 34 years. And as you know, Leonard, we, uh, mm. we handle a dozen different areas of civil liberties. And, and there were any number of cases that, uh, that I, I would, would call defining and, and, and uh, made a significant difference in, in my life and in my career. Um, and Skokie was certainly one of them. But, uh, you know, when you, when you make a film, as, as, uh, as Nico knows better than I, um, you can't take a thousand cases. You can only take a couple of representative issues and use them to, to make larger points. And I think that's really what, what happened here. Uh, uh, when I came to the ACLU, um, racial justice was the biggest issue uh, on my plate. And, and, uh, uh, and there were many, many battles uh, for racial justice that, that um, I guess you could say uh, were equal to or transcended the Jackie Robinson moment. But for me, developmentally, I was nine years old uh, and a Brooklyn Dodger fan in, in, in growing up in the streets in East Flatbush and when that happened. And that was the way I sort of learned about racial injustice. I didn't learn it in school. I learned it uh, over the radio, listening to the Dodger games. Uh, I, uh, I'm a little younger than you, but uh, I also, I went to Dodger games at Ebbets Field that year. And what I remember is how exciting it was to watch him play. I was probably unaware at the time of all of the racial animosity that he was experiencing when the team went on the road. I guess uh, you're being... Uh, a couple of years older, you were probably reading about that in the newspapers. Well, it it, um, it, it is true that that the being a few years older meant that that my baptism of that issue was in 1947, 48, 49. Um, uh, it was still going on a few years later, but it wasn't mm. it wasn't as in your face and as prominent as as the moment when it when it when it happened and when everything changed. I didn't uh, really read much about it in the newspapers. I mean, I was nine years old. Uh, mostly what I read in the newspapers were, were the sports columns and, and, and the comics. Um, but in any case, there wasn't all that much about it in the newspapers that focused on the racial justice issue. Uh, where I learned about it mostly was listening to the Dodger games on the radio. I mean, I went to Ebbets Field also uh, uh, in those years, but, but in the beginning... I listened to Red Barber broadcasting the games, and and when the Dodgers played in St. Louis, played the Cardinals. Mm. Um, St. St. Louis was the southernmost and the westernmost team uh, in in the league at that time, and it was a southern town, and I I didn't know that, and and uh, I I learned listening to the games uh, that that uh, when Robinson and Campanella and Don Newcomb and you know, the early black players on the team went to St. Louis with the team, they had to stay in separate hotels or with private, uh, in private homes, and they had to eat in separate restaurants, and they, you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't stay with the rest of the team, they couldn't eat with the rest of the team, because there was 
Jim Crow segregation of, of, of mm-hmm. hotels and restaurants. And that's how I first learned about Jim Crow in this country. Um, I, you know, in the 1940s, they didn't teach this stuff in schools. And in the film you say, if you were a Dodgers fan, you believe in civil liberties. Well, that, you know, that, that sort of happened later. I mean, I absorbed that lesson, uh, but I wasn't really, you know, thinking about it at nine years old and ten years old. I was thinking about when the Dodgers going to win the game. And, and you know, and, and, and when they were mistreating uh, our players. You know, I, used to, I used to joke and say what mattered to us in those days was not the color of your skin, but the color of your uniform. And, and uh, they were mistreating my guys. And I sort of knew that and I resented it. But I can't say I thought about it much uh, at that age. Um, uh, later, years later, when I got to the ACLU, I found a curious thing. Uh, I found out that most of the uh, uh, men there, I say men because women were sort of excluded as, as young girls from participating in, in, in baseball for the most part, um, uh, because they were girls. And that, that was another kind of discrimination that, that went on that, that most of us were sort of blind to. But, but most of the men my age at the ACLU turned out to be old Brooklyn Dodger fans. And that was a curious and statistically improbable thing. Uh, in New York, where you had lots of Giant fans and lots of Yankee fans and lots of Dodger fans, if you had any kind of a random selection, you would find a mix of, of all of them. But at the ACLU, almost everybody my age was a Dodger, had been a Dodger fan, and and uh, there were no Yankee fans, and I think only one Giant fan. And um, I was a mathematician at those days. I, I I taught this stuff, and I knew that that was statistically very improbable. And so I began to sort of think about why why was that, and I developed this kind of. Uh, a pop sociology theory that I usually use most as a stand-up routine, you know, at, at parties, about how if you grew up in the 40s uh, and, uh, and 50s in New York City uh, and you were, you were a baseball fan, if you were a Dodger fan, you grew up to believe in civil rights and civil liberties. If you were a Yankee fan, you grew up to believe in oil depletion allowances. Yankees are very late to integrate. Well, they were very late to integrate, and they were in New York the kind of corporate team. I mean, they, they. I mean, you know, in New York, uh, the Giants had uh, uh, a lot of black players yeah, very Mays. quickly. Uh, Willie Mays and Hank Thompson and Monty Irvin, and the, you know, it was. And you would have expected the Yankees to do so as well, but they didn't have a black player until '55 or '56, which is eight or nine years after. Austin Howard. I guess was Elson, Elson Howard. That's right, and and and, and um, they were the they were one of the last teams in the major leagues to hire a black player. I think they were the third team from the last. The last team was the Boston Red Sox, and I think the second last was Philadelphia Phillies. But the Yankees were the third last in New York. So yes. so there really was something sociological going on, and um, you know I used to kid around and say. It's a, it's, if I had been a Yankee fan, I might have grown up to be a racist instead of a civil rights advocate. And now, was, growing up, you said you grew up in East Flatbush. Yeah. I guess a mostly white Jewish neighborhood. At the yes. time, did you have any sense of racial differences? What, what kind of political views did your parents have? No, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, although New York in general and Brooklyn in particular, were integrated in the sense that if you looked at the population as a whole, 
you would find lots of whites, lots of blacks, lots of lots of Irish, lots of Italian, lots of Jews, lots of you know, Catholics, lots of everything. But the way New York was organized in those days, um, everybody lived in pretty rigidly segregated mm. ethnic communities. I mean, I could come out of my uh, a little apartment uh, uh, building in in in, in Brooklyn and I'd probably walk for you know. 30 blocks in any direction and never see anybody who wasn't white and Jewish. Um, so, so the, the, the sense of, of, of there being others uh, was just not there, not in school. My, if my parents took me uh, to, with them to vote and to show me what voting was like. There were never any blacks on the, on the lines waiting to vote. If, if I went shopping with, with my mother, uh, either to department stores to buy clothes or to the local grocery store, there were never any blacks, not, in the, not behind the counter, not uh, uh, as customers. If you went to the movies, which we all did all the time, uh, there were no blacks on the screen and there were no blacks in the audience. Um, so, so, so the fact is, is that is that without really realizing it at the time, segregation was as real a fact uh, uh, in white liberal communities growing up in New York in the 40s as it was in, in more rigidly Jim Crow segregated communities in the South, not by law, but by custom. And, and um, uh, now my parents were pretty liberal. My mother, my mother uh, was very liberal and, and you know, uh, always in the first the first time I saw a black person on the street, uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe five, maybe six. Um, uh, I was startled. I was startled the way kids might be startled seeing somebody on crutches for the first time, uh, uh, seeing somebody with cerebral palsy for the first time. I mean, this was this was this was not uh, this was not normal. Uh, what was normal was everybody was like you. And and um, I remember saying to my mother, "What? What? Who? What is that?" You know. And she looked at me, and and I will always forever treasure her for this. Um, and she didn't give me a big lecture, and she didn't preach. She just said very casually, "Well, some people have different skin color, Ira. Uh, the way people have different eye color or different hair color." And that was that. And I I. I accepted it because it made sense to me, and and I knew about different eye color, and I knew about different hair color, and I knew that that didn't make a real difference in people, and and it didn't didn't tell you whether they were smart or dumb or could hit a baseball or or were good in mathematics or or anything. Um, so that's the way I you know that's always the way I thought of skin color, uh, and that was really because of my mother. But in 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 point of fact. I never had any friends. I never had any classmates. I never had any teachers uh, whose skin was a different color than mine. Or I grew up in Williamsburg. It was a different story. But um, I, I want everyone to know that listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guests are Ira Glasser, who is the subject of a new film called Mighty Ira. And also Nico Perino, who is the film's co-director and senior producer. You mentioned, uh, I read that uh, you uh, studied mathematics and, and then taught the subject at Queens College and Sarah Lawrence. So how did you wind up working for a social justice organization? Uh, was it, <laughs> this was the 1960s, wasn't it? Of course, that's an important yes. civil rights era. Yes. Did you well, feel that, that was there was something more important to do with your life? 
than teaching well, math? Well, I always, yeah, I always cared. Uh, I always cared more about those issues. Uh, but you know, when you when you go into school, and especially if you were a boy, uh, you know, girls, girls. Uh, Parents and teachers were not ambitious for girls. There was there was a really repressive kind of gender discrimination that that I was completely unaware of. I mean, it, it, I, I just you know it was so normalized that that I didn't even see it until years, decades later. But but if you were a boy and you were good in school, um, you were tracked into. If you were a white boy and you were good in school, you were tracked into into uh, math and science very often. And into into subject matter where you could get a job, that was always the question that that your elders asked you. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to earn a living? Uh, don't forget, this was uh, these were immigrant. Uh, my grandparents were immigrants. My parents were first generation. Um, very few of them had had uh, much education beyond grammar school or, or high school, at most. And they they were mostly laborers. My father was a construction worker. Uh, so, so was my grandfather, and 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 so you know there was we were the generation we were the reason that the grandparents came here, and 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 their dream for us was you know to be something better as they thought to be a professional. So we were really tracked into into these areas, and if you showed any talent, and I just happened to be pretty good at numbers and at mathematics pretty early, uh, I just kept getting pushed along. And and uh, but I was always more interested in in areas that you might call the humanities. I w- I was always more interested in the subject matter of of literature and, and and social studies and history and things like that. But you know, whenever and your I talk- first job was with the N- NYCLU, the New York yes, branch right. of the ACLU. Right. But didn't you originally turn down the job when you were offered it? Yeah. Uh, was well, was did Robert of, Kennedy play a role in convincing yes. you to? Yes, he did, and it was sort of accidental. I was I was uh, uh, in the early '60s. I uh, as 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 the society began to bubble and boil with social change, I got more and more dissatisfied with just teaching math. I wanted to do something more political, more active, and I ended up being an editor at a magazine of of public affairs called Current. Um, uh, and, and, uh, I was there for four or five years and now it was sort of 66 or 67 and things were really heating up in the country with the anti-Vietnam war protest and the civil rights uh, development and so forth. And, and I really wanted to get into that. And what I thought I wanted to do was get into it politically. I, and, and I, I decided I wanted to try and see if I could work for Bobby Kennedy who was my favorite politician at the time, and who I thought should run for president. And I wrote him a long letter, and, and sort of miraculously, and, and after months of, of, of time, I actually got an appointment to see him. And I went to see him in Washington, and um, uh, you know, it was sort of interesting. When I was at the ACLU all those years, I saw many senators, but I don't think I ever saw one alone, you know, without, without some of my staff and some of their staff. Uh, here it was just me and him, and and uh, and I was explaining why I thought he should run for president and why I wanted to work for him if he did. And he punted. You know, he just said, "Well, I'm not ready to do that uh, yet. I don't know." But this was this was late '66, and um, 
And then he, so I shrugged my shoulders, and I thought the meeting was over. And then he says to me, so what else are you thinking of doing? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, you know I'm editing the magazine, but it's, it's, it's sort of you know, theoretical. I'd like to do something more active. And I told him that I had this offer uh, to become associate director of the New York Civil Liberties Union, which was a very small organization at the time. And, and, you know, uh, and, and very few people heard of it. And, and, um, and, he, and he said, and? And I said, well, I, I don't think I'm going to take it. It's, 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 it's a legal organization. It's, its interests are probably narrower than mine. Uh, and I'm not a lawyer. And... and uh, I, I just, I, I, I don't think, I think it's going to be too narrow. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're wrong about the ACLU. Um, it will get you into all the issues you say you're interested in. And I say, you, how come? And he says, well, he says, the ACLU is really a unique organization in this country. It's unique for two reasons. Uh, one is, is that its mission is to defend the fundamental values that the country started with, with the Bill of Rights, um, and it does. And, and, and the the other thing about it is that it doesn't do so by you know screaming from rooftops. It it uh, so it may do that too, but it works in the courts. It works in the legislatures. Uh, it works in the form of public opinion. Uh, so it 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 functions in very sort of traditional centrist ways but from a radical set of premises about what this country is really based on. And I think it will, it will get you into all the issues you say you're interested in. And, and I'm assuming that the assassinations of Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy made working on civil liberties issues feel even more relevant. Well, it did. I ended up taking the job uh, primarily because of uh, he, what he said made me rethink it. Um, isn't that what he's that he said it, so I did it, but it made me rethink, and, and, and I said to myself, well, if a guy like this, who is probably not as liberal as I am, uh, thinks that about the ACLU, maybe I should give it some more thought. And I ended up taking the job, but my intention was, uh, when he announced a year later, after I took the job, he announced that he was running after after Gene McCarthy uh, did so well in the New Hampshire primary, uh, <clears throat> I got back in touch with his staff and said, well, if he's going to run, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can go work for him. And I, my intention was uh, to leave the, the New York Civil Liberties Union after a year or two. And, and, and if I could get on his staff, that was what I was trying to do. And I was in the process of talking to uh, uh, one of his deputies. Um, I don't know if it would have happened or not, but I was hopeful that it would happen. And I was in the process of trying to negotiate it when he was killed. And this was, of course, only two months after King was killed. And after he was killed, uh, you know, that was, you know, and then, then the following November, Richard Nixon gets elected, which was one of my nightmares. And, and you know, the thought of working in politics uh, sort of became uh, quixotic. And, and I, suddenly, I suddenly felt like, if I wanted to advance the values that I believed in, uh, I was in a good place to do so on the outside of the political system rather than inside of it. And, and I hadn't really much alternative, so I stayed at the NYCLU, and, uh, uh, but I never imagined it would be my life's career. 
Well, a large part of the film focuses on the ACLU's decision to defend the American Nazi Party's right to march in Skokie, Illinois in 1978. And you were still with the New York branch, weren't you? Yeah, the, the case is actually, the case happened in 1977. Mm -hmm. And I was still, I was by that time the head of the New York branch, yes. And I had nothing to do with the decision to take the case or anything else, but I had a lot to do with defending it because uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union probably had a higher proportion of Jews among its members than any other ACLU branch in the country. And uh, not all of them, but a lot of them were very angry. So I got a lot of resignations and a lot of uh, uh, very distressed mail. And, and so I got, I got into the middle of it that way, but it was derivative. I, I, was, no, I was not part of the decision to take the case. Now, the American Nazi Party's head was a man named Frank Holland. And I hadn't known until I saw this film that his family was Jewish and had changed their name from Cohen to Colin. Yes. Uh, did, did anyone ever ask a psychiatrist to explain what had happened there, that extreme transition? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I do know that. <laughs> Talk about self-hating. That's right, exactly. Uh, I know that we all knew it in the ACLU. Um, I mean, the case was actually started by the ACLU of Illinois uh, by their legal director, uh, whose name was David Goldberger, uh, a Jewish lawyer, and uh, he appears in the film, too. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I knew him only, only from a distance, really, at the time. And, and uh, uh, so, you know, we all knew inside the ACLU uh, about Colin. I mean, David and the ACLU of Illinois had represented him many times before. I mean, Colin and his little band of neo-Nazis were, were uh, from Chicago, and, and uh, they were constantly you know, trying to demonstrate in Chicago against housing integration. It was more anti-black than they were anti-Jewish. Uh, uh, they were constantly demonstrating against the uh, integration of the schools and integration of housing. And, and, and they were constantly, you know, getting blocked by the police, uh, as were uh, civil rights groups. They were, the, the Colin and his group were constantly in, in, in opposition to the Martin Luther King Jr. Association, and they both demonstrated all the time in a, in a park called Marquette's Park uh, in the southwest side of Chicago. And the cops would con continually break up the demonstrations. And so both of them, uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Association and Colin's group, um, used to come to the ACLU in, in Chicago for help. So, so even even Goldberg, though I'm assuming that the uh, the uh, American Nazi Party would have seen the ACLU to some degree as as an enemy. No. Well, yeah, but as an enemy that was able to help them when no one else would. Uh, and, and and Skokie took on significance because uh, it was where many Holocaust survivors right. were were right. living. Nico, you interviewed a man named Ben Stern, a survivor of concentration camps who was living in Skokie at the time. How did you find him? So I actually found him through Ira, and, and like the timing of the movie, it was quite a coincidence because we had talked with Ira about making the documentary, and he just mentioned as an aside that he was going out to California to meet this man, Ben Stern, who survived nine concentration camps, two death marches, and two ghettos, because his daughter had made a movie about his life called Near Normal Man, and they were invited to appear at the University of California, Berkeley, to talk about the Skokie case, which is a part of that documentary. And, you know, being a filmmaker, 
I thought, well, this is an incredible opportunity to catch moving footage because Ira had never met Ben Stern, and Ben Stern was one of the leading organizers of the opposition in the Jewish community to the neo-Nazi march or rally in Skokie. So we went out there to capture Ira and Ben's first meeting, and uh, it was incredibly moving. And one of the things that you'll see in the documentary is not just that we have footage of that first meeting, but Ben Stern was quite vocal. And when we were going to find archival footage about the Nazi rally in Skokie, Ben Stern appears in the footage that ABC has, that CBS has, that NBC has. There's a there's an appearance that David Goldberger makes on the Donahue show where he's going to defend the ACLU's position in Skokie. But much to David's surprise, Bill Donahue packed the audience with Holocaust survivors, one of whom was Ben Stern, who got up and asked the question. So Ben Stern is, you know, if, if I was the main character, Ben is, is probably the next main character. And mm-hmm. Ben is still alive. He's 99. And he, wow. just, well, he just celebrated his 99th birthday last month. So happy birthday, now, Ben. Before we go to a little break, I, I do want to uh, finish up on what happened with the Skokie uh, situation. Um, you pointed out, Ira, that uh, it hurt the organization's reputation in some circles and its ability to raise money. Uh, at what point did you become the head of the ACLU? Was it while the case was still in the courts? It, uh, I think so, or, or, or else it was just over. Uh, I, be- I become head of the National ACLU in, uh, in late September of uh, 1978. Uh, uh, the case may still have been winding through uh, its final uh, its final stages. Uh, yeah, but, there were three you know, lawsuits in the in the case, and I think the last one wrapped up in November, so maybe two months yeah. after you. Yeah, and, and and the the um, uh, you know the interesting thing, Leonard, was that legally the case was never in doubt, and it was never very interesting. It was a it was a slam dunk case. There was no way. We were ever going to lose that case. The, the the thing that happened was that the case achieved such notoriety and 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 provoked such intense opposition. Uh, I mean, the ACLU had taken cases like this for decades and decades, every year, uh, half a dozen of them or so, um, without without that kind of reaction. But this time, it struck a nerve because you know, quite inadvertently. Uh, as far as we were concerned, uh, the town of Skokie happened to be the home of, of, of Holocaust survivors, and it was it was it was it was a, it was a little bit like representing the Klan's right to demonstrate in the streets in Mississippi, uh, and having and, and realizing the way black folks felt, uh, uh, you know, whose 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 relatives and friends had been lynched years before. Uh, by by the Klan, it was that sort of a traumatic uh, event, and it was that trauma and the public controversy and the resignations of members that created the the um, the, the the whole issue. It was never the legal case. The legal case was straightforward. We always knew we were going to win it. We had won cases like that countless times before. Um, we were, in fact, representing the Martin Luther King Jr. Association in Chicago at the very same time on the very same legal issue, and and um, so 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 the, the the case was was not was not problematic. The reaction to the case and its effect on the ACLU uh, is what was problematic. 
had your predecessor left because of the controversy over? Oh the no, 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 no. Uh, no, my predecessor was was uh, responsible for uh, uh, for supporting the case. He was a hundred percent behind it. He, his family, and he, as a two-year-old themselves, had he was born in, in Berlin, uh, had fled Germany in 1939, and uh, when he was a, a tiny kid, and and uh, uh, but he was no, he he was a, a thousand percent. In support of the case, and, and his leaving in '78 had, had had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, it may have had something to do with the fact that the place was a little bit in financial crisis because of it. But but that that uh, that was no part of why he left. No, he was he was totally supportive, uh, as much as anyone in the ACLU. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Ira Glasser, the subject of a new documentary called Mighty Ira, and Nico Perino, who is the film's co-director and senior producer. Uh, the film uh, can be seen uh, currently at the Angelica platform, and then starting tomorrow, it'll be available on Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play. So let's move on with this story. There's so much to tell. I'm not sure that we can get to it all. Uh, but uh, the film also looks forward to after you were no longer the head of the ACLU to the Charlottesville Unite the Right March in 2017, in which a counter protester was killed. How, how does what happened in Charlottesville compare to Skokie nearly 40 years earlier? Uh, obviously, they had different outcomes. Well, they, you know, the legal issue was sort of the same. Uh, you know, the, the legal issue was... Can you can you prevent a march? Can the police uh, or the or the government prevent a march uh, because of its controversy and because of its hateful message and because other people uh, uh, might be violent uh, toward the speech? And and the answer always has to be no. The answer always has to be if you let the government pick and choose whose speech to permit and whose speech to allow, uh, then all of our speech rights will be uh, threatened because you've got to remember who the government is very often. The government is Rudy Giuliani. The government is Richard Nixon. The government is Donald Trump. And, and why would, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters want to leave their right to protest in the streets uh, to Donald Trump. I mean, if it were left to Donald Trump, they would be barred. So, so the, the ACLU has always taken the position that if, if people are going to speak in ways that rile other people up, then the role of the police has to be to protect the rights of people to demonstrate 
on both sides of an issue, if, if that's the way it works out, uh, but to prohibit and bar and arrest anybody who is being violent toward them. Um, but polls, polls suggest that many Americans feel that the First Amendment goes too far when it comes to the matter of hate speech, speech that is deemed racist or otherwise belittles particular people. And we even have a situation where four museums are uh, holding off on putting on an exhibit of the great painter Philip Gustin's work because there are images of, of Klansmen in them. Yeah. Well, you know, it has always so, been... It has always been the case, always, throughout our history, that most people were not in favor of free speech unless it was their own or people that they agreed with. And, and um, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was true in the 90s that, that black students on college campuses were always in favor of hate speech codes, of, of college rules that would bar uh, uh, bigoted speech on, on campus. Um, but, you know, the fact is, if codes like that, you always have to ask yourself, well, who gets to decide how to apply these codes? Who gets to decide who the targets are? And it's never the people who are vulnerable and powerless and who want these codes. Uh, the black students may have had it in their mind that people like David Duke would be barred. But if hate speech codes had been in existence on college campuses in the 1960s, their most frequent victim would have been Malcolm X. Because it wouldn't have been civil rights advocates who were deciding whose speech was hateful. It would have been, you know, white administrators. And if you remember, Leonard, Malcolm X was feared and despised um, and thought to be a racist himself by many, many white people. When, you know, he got up and said and called white people blue-eyed devils. And, and, and when he said things like, uh, after Kennedy's assassination, the chickens have come home to roost because America's violence uh, has now spread and consumed the president. I mean, people were outraged at that. And he became, he became uh, an example to white people of hate speech. So the whole question always is, who gets to decide this? And the reason why these kind of codes are, are, are uh, dangerous is because of who decides it. And, and, uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Um, and, and, you know, so, I mean, in, in England in the 1970s, the National Student Union there uh, passed a resolution that banned uh, uh, racist speech on all their campuses. And it was almost all the student groups favored that. And among the student groups supporting that, uh, that ban was a group of, of uh, Zionist Jewish kids, uh, an organization on, on, on campus there. Uh, and a few years later, uh, the, the National Student Association banned Zionists from speaking, uh, using that very same uh, law uh, on the grounds that Zionism was a form of racism. Well, the Zionist kids were stunned by that uh, because they had helped to pass that law. But... Um, they weren't the ones who were getting to decide, and, and, and the climate changed, and, and the people in charge thought that Zionism was a form of racism, and, that was, and, and suddenly, you know, the, 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 uh, the law that they thought would protect them was used against them, and uh, that's why I always say, um, you know, speech restrictions are like poison gas. They sound great 
when you have an, uh, a target in mind right in front of you and you've got the gas. But when you start using it, the wind shifts, the gas blows back on you, and the thing that you thought was going to protect you uh, kills you. And, you. and that's, you know, that's the problem with speech restrictions. It always is. You've been credited with transforming the ACLU from a mom-and-pop operation that was active mostly in a few large cities into a nationwide civil liberties powerhouse. Uh, since uh, a large part of nonprofit work is fundraising, was your background in math useful in, in that regard? <laughs> no. Uh, I used to joke that my background in math was useful uh, in helping me to calculate faster than anybody else could uh, our deficits. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but but uh, 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 and you know it did it did sort of contribute I suppose in a way to the ease with which I picked up uh, uh, being able to read uh, technical accounting sheets and financial statements and things like that. But fundraising, no. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I had never asked anybody for. I think the last and only fundraising I ever did was as a kid on the streets in Brooklyn in, in 1947, eight, nine. I used to go around with those little blue and white Jewish National Fund. Uh, cans and, coll and and collect money, you know, dimes and pennies and nickels on the streets from from people. But no, I had never raised a dollar in my life. And and uh, you know, when I came to the ACLU, I thought I was going to be doing all this important work on behalf of things I believed in, and civil rights and civil liberties and gender discrimination and discrimination against gays and, and due process and all that stuff. And and I found out that you know before you got to do that. Uh, you got to have a staff, and before you have staff, you have to be able to pay them, and before you uh, and you have to pay rent for an office, and you have to pay for telephones and, 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 and paper and printing and all that stuff, and that you and, and if you were an organization that didn't have anything to sell, um, uh, then you had to raise the money from people who who believed that what you were doing was right and wanted to be a part of it, and that's why recruiting members and donors and raising money from them. Uh, became a predicate to being able to do the work that I thought I had come to the ACLU to do. So you just had to learn how to do it. Um, yeah. As somebody who broadcasts on WBAI, I understand perfectly how all of that works. But I want to touch on another part of the film, uh, which looks at your friendship with William F. Buckley, the conservative founder of the National Review magazine and, and the host of the TV show Firing Line. Um, did you first meet because you uh, had been invited uh, on his show to debate him? Yes. And you probably were always on opposite political sides, weren't you? So were you First, surprised when friendship yes. developed? Well, I was, and, it, and it, it didn't happen at first either, and it was sort of accidental. But, but um, yeah, I had been on his show a bunch of times, and, and uh, it was only, you know... Uh, the habits of civility that I guess presented prevented us from uh, from going at each other, you know, at each other's throats physically. I mean, we were always on the other side. There was maybe later, years later, there was one or two issues where we were on the same side, but for the most part, um, we were polar opposites. Uh, and 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 uh, whenever I was on the show, we were debating from opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. There is a clip in the film of the two of you debating the issue with. Uh, uh, Representative Charles Wrangler, Wrangler, Wrangler. about, about uh, legalization of drugs. Uh, he opposed legalization. Uh, so uh, I guess you agree with Buckley on that. Yeah, that, uh, was, the, that was the one. Uh, there was one other time, uh, I, I think, on, on, on students' rights to free speech on campus. But, but 
But the drug issue was the one issue where we were on the same side of the debates. You know, in those days, uh, Firing Line, Buckley Show, uh, had, had, had developed from being a, a half-hour show of, of one-on-one debates, uh, Buckley and somebody else, uh, into this two-hour extravaganza of four people on one side and four people on the other side and the moderator. And, and I was on that show bunches of times, and and Buckley was always uh, uh, leading the, the the four on the opposite side uh, that I was on, except for the drug issue, and um, and that you know was sort of an accident. I I read a column of his one day, uh, uh, in which he, to my great surprise, uh, expressed skepticism about the war on drugs and and seemed to indicate that he favored. Uh, legalization, at least with respect to marijuana, and and uh, I was so amazed, I wrote him a letter. I mean, I I knew him by that time because I had been on the show many times, but 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 I only knew him, you know, as I say, across the debating table. And I wrote him this letter, and I said I was surprised um, uh, to find you taking this position in your column, and it may surprise you to learn that that's the ACLU's position and has been since at least 1968. And um, this was in the 80s. And um, uh, uh, how about we maybe do something together? Uh, it would, it would uh, astonish our enemies and amaze our friends <laughs> if, if uh, we came out on the same side of any issue. But this looks like one that would be worth talking about. So he invites me to lunch, which is the first time that I ever uh, uh, you know, saw him outside of, of, the, of, the, of the television studio where we debated. And and we go to lunch, and, and we were sort of feeling each other out. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out who is this guy. And and um, uh, at the end of the lunch, and we ended up with long philosophical discussions about, about John Stuart Mill and, and alcohol prohibition and drug prohibition. And at the end of it, he says, well, you know, I'm not much of an activist. I don't know what you have in mind. I said, well, I wasn't talking about going out in the streets demonstrating. I thought maybe we could do one of your shows on, on drug legalization uh, or drug prohibition and, um, and just be on the same side if, if, if that's the side we agree on. So he agrees to do it. And he does, this was when he still had the half-hour show, he does the first show with him and me and the New York head of the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, and I, this guy was a real, you know, drug warrior, uh, strong supporter of drug prohibition. Um, uh, and he comes on the show, and he knows that Buckley is a conservative, and, and I'm a civil liberties guy. And, and I think he fully expected Buckley to be on his side. Uh, mm-hmm. And instead he finds that Buckley and I gang up on him. And the show was really had fireworks. It was a great show. And, and so Buckley decides to do another one, and this time he invites Charlie Rangel, um, who is, you know, Mr. Liberal, but also a drug warrior. And, and I knew Charlie very well from the days when he was in the New York State Legislature, and I used to lobby up there for the ACLU. And I can't remember a single time that he and I ever disagreed on an issue except around drug prohibition. So he comes on the show... And I think, like the DEA guy, he expects it's going to be me and him against against Buckley, and finds that Buckley and I gang up on him. 
And so it was, it was sort of great television, and, and that was sort of the beginning of, of um, uh, being on the same side of an issue was sort of the beginning of what, what became a less, uh, you know, a less adversarial personal relationship. And then and you later, ended up taking him to a Mets game, and we yeah, see you on the subway. Probably the first ball game he ever went to, and the first time he was ever on the subway. But I, I want—I don't have a lot of time, and I do want to address one other thing, uh, Nico. Uh, several of of Iris' colleagues from the ACLU and other social justice organizations are in the film. Norman Siegel, Nadine Strassen, Brian Stevenson, Michael Myers, all interviewed. But we don't see Anthony Romero, the the current head of the ACLU. Did you try to interview him? No, and, and the reason for that is that I was really hoping to tell a historical story here. You'll notice that everyone interviewed is someone who was Iris mm -hmm. Beer or someone that he worked with. And the reason I wanted to tell a historical story gets back to the point that you were making earlier, Leonard, that there seems to be this atmosphere in the country right now where people are more comfortable with, free, uh, with speech restrictions. And I'm 30 years old, so I'm much Ira's junior, uh, coincidentally around the same age Ira was when he started at the ACLU. And, you know, I wanted to tell a story to my generation about how these old school civil libertarians like Ira, like Nat Hentoff, many of whom have retired from the barricades or in the case of Nat Hentoff and Norman Dorson, passed away, why they stood for the principles that they stood with. Because my generation doesn't remember what was happening in the civil rights movement. They don't remember, for example, that the thing that started the Skokie case, which was a $350,000 insurance bond requirement in Marquette Park, and then later a similar ordinance was passed in Skokie, they don't understand that those ordinances were the classic mechanism used against civil rights demonstrators, and that if you allowed it to be used against the Nazis in Chicago or in Skokie, then it could then be used against civil rights demonstrators or insert your preferred cause. And so the, the goal here was to tell a history lesson about an old school generation of civil libertarians. And you know, that's why at the beginning of the film, and this was just coincidence as well, when Ira returns to Abbott's Field, a place that he had never been since it was torn down, two young girls come up and walk, uh, walk up to him and, and ask him about what once stood there, which was once a glorious stadium or mm -hmm. cathedral, as Ira described it. And, yeah, that's and in then the film. at the end of the, yeah, and then at the end of the film, he's, he's passing the baton, as he was talking about earlier, to the next generation. And no, so no, it's, it's, I just have a minute left. But Ira, you left the ACLU in 2001. Was it partly because you'd suffered a heart attack a few years before? No, it... no, no, no. I was still playing full court basketball two or three times a week at that time. Um, uh, uh, no, I had, I had decided, you know, in my, in my mid-late 50s, uh, I mean, I didn't tell anybody about this, but I had decided that uh, if I could afford it, I wanted to retire, uh, you know, in, in my early 60s, uh, while I still had my legs and, and spend more time with with my family, with my with my grandchildren. Uh, I had two little granddaughters at the time I retired, and I have 10 now. And the two the two who were little then were 24 and 21 now, and and I didn't want to miss that. Uh, and I thought, well, you know. Um, you spend 35 years working for this. You can't spend forever. Uh, and I said in the beginning, this is not a fight that ends uh, at any particular time. And, and if I stayed another five years or another 10 years, I could accomplish a little more 
But really, what could I accomplish uh, in another five years that I hadn't already accomplished in 34 years? And other people had to take over anyway. And, and, and the problem is you get to be about in your 60s. Um, if you spend another five years or 10 years working, you give up a lot. You give up a lot personally, and you can't recover that. It, 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 you, know, you keep postponing seeing three-year-olds and you can't postpone what doesn't recur. And I didn't want to miss that. So and we, we've that run was, out of time, unfortunately. Uh, many listeners may be wondering why the film is called Mighty Ira. Watch it and you'll find out. Uh, it can be uh, currently seen on the Angelica platform and starting tomorrow will be available on Amazon, iTunes and Google Play. Thank you both so much, Ira Glasser and Nico Perino, for, for talking to us about it. Thank you, Leonard. Thanks, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who produced today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. But before I sign off, I, I need to take a few minutes to ask you for your support for this station. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And please do that right now to keep this unique, in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to get back on our feet after this pandemic has pretty much reduced our funding as it has done for many independent media sources. And by funding, we mean you. WBAI is 100% sponsored by listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, call right now. 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Lopate at large, and a big thanks to anyone who's already stepped up to support the show in this station. We rely on the generosity of listeners like you. So if you haven't the call, make that call, 516-620-3602. Um, and we hope that you'll tune in tomorrow when sibling language experts and regular contributors to the show, Catherine and Ross Petrus, will take your calls on how the pandemic has changed the way we speak. It promises to be a lot of fun, so we hope to see you then.